this moment to me is really important. Um, we've been doing craft of comedy. It started out really tiny and has grown and grown and grown. And I'm just quite moved to see this number of people here. Imagine how many number of people here if, if, if we had the money to advertise it properly. And how marvellous that would be. Um, and I've always wanted to get to the stage where we would have um, rather portentously uh, a keynote speaker. Somebody who I could invite not just to, you know, chit-chat about this and that, but, but to think about uh, perspective on the industry. Uh, if you like, I'm, I've been trying not to use the phrase state of the nation, but a sort of comedy state of the nation. And I'm delighted that we're able to do that this year. And I was delighted to be able to ask Dave Cohen, who is a friend of mine, has been for, for more years than I can remember, and even when I met him, he'd done absolutely loads of stuff when I was in school. Um, and so he has this extraordinary career, this wide and varied career uh, across comedy, starting out as a stand-up and improviser. He was, and not many people know this, a fa the fa one of the founder members of the Comedy Store Players. So if you see, you see the pictures, you see this young man there with Merton and whoever else. Oh, it's, a, oh, it's on the book. It's, in the, it's on the back of the book. Um, he was also one of the first comics involved with The Cutting Edge which, uh, at the Comedy Store, which you know, was part of the foundation, the reinvention of topical comedy and topical stand-up. Um, he's written on shows as varied as the news headlines, Weekending, Have I Got News For You, Not Going Out, My Family. And he's also a musician, a uh, one-time member of Guns and Moses. Anyone remember Guns and Moses? You have Shuma Moses, right? You were Moses, right. Um, and he's now, ch and has been for some time, chief songwriter on the international hit Horrible Histories. It's my great pleasure uh, to ask you to welcome to the stage Dave Cohen. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Steve. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you, everyone, for uh, dragging yourself away from Egypt versus Uruguay. Um, it's nil-nil, by the way, in case you're wondering. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here today. I am very honoured. Uh, thank you very much, Steve, for that uh, introduction. Uh, very honoured that Steve has invited me to give the first ever Craft of Comedy keynote speech. Now, he could have chosen someone at the heart of the industry, someone at the pinnacle of their success. Instead, he chose a writer. <laughs> An averagely successful comedy writer. Uh, not that I should be putting myself down here. I, I am the most averagely successful comedy writer in the country. A hack, nonetheless, though. And it's an unwritten rule. Well, it's probably written somewhere, but I'm damned if I'm going to give another writer credit for it. That if one or more comedy writers are gathered together in one place, they will moan. <laughs> uh, it's actually, it's even a collective noun now. A moan of comedy writers. But I don't want to moan, okay? Uh, as my old gran used to tell me, if you can't think of anything nice to say, you're Piers Morgan. <laughs> what I want this to be, I want this to be a celebration, uh, a love letter to my favourite televisual form, the audience sitcom. Now, I was thinking that this speech, this could be the speech in which I, I burn all my bridges, uh, annoy all the people that I'm looking to get work from. Uh, but then I thought, 
No, I haven't had a series of my own commissions since 2001, so what the heck. I'm looking at today's talk, not so much as where I pick up my P45, but more like Dave's long overdue retirement bash. So I want to start by uh, identifying what I see as the big problems with audience sitcom at the moment. Uh, not a moan, pinpointing the issues. Uh, then I want to go on to talk about solutions to that, and then you can moan at me for being oversimplistic. So the audience sitcom is dead, uh, we're told, every few years, by journalists convinced that they're qualified to write about sitcom uh, due to their abundant experience of sitting in front of the telly, arms folded, mumbling, that's not funny, I could do better than that. Why are they using canned laughter? Now, they do have a point. Now, no matter how many times we try and explain that laughter is not canned, if it's edited in any way, it's usually to cut the dead time of a laugh that goes on too long. The fact is that if you are not enjoying this audience sitcom on the telly, nothing will make you hate it even more than the sound of 400 morons who are loving it. So if you want to be depressed about easily about the state of audience sitcom, Check through the British Comedy Guide's uh, annual pages. They have a page every year, notable new comedy shows. So I thought I'd go back. I went back 50 years. 1968, I looked at. Here are some of the audience sitcoms that aired for the first time in 1968. Dad's Army, Please Sir, Nearest and Dearest, The Dustbin Men, Father, Dear Father, and a sketch series called Nice Time, uh, which starred Kenny Everett and anyone know who else? Jermaine Greer. Greer, correct, that's right, yes. And um, for a bonus point, which 60s Cambridge political firebrand pioneered allowing women into the footlights? Tim Brooke Taylor. There you go. Now, I realise that none of this has got anything to do with audience sitcom, but I just thought, now there's some stupid, pointless facts that everybody will want to know and can be telling everyone else in the pub. Pub quiz, that's the next question you've got there. So, let's move forward 20 years. That's 1968. 1988, still a pretty good year for new shows. First time in 1988, we saw Red Dwarf, Rabsi Nesbitt, After Henry, You Rang Malud. And then a show called Whose Line Is It Anyway? Yep, the panel show Onslaught began 30 years ago. So moving on, another 20 years, we go to 2008. What are the notable new comedies listed, audience comedies listed for 2008? Cabin Pressure, Rudy's Rare Records, both radio and the in-betweeners. So not one new notable TV audience sitcom. So there's a lot of problems. It's been a problem that's been around for years, the decline of the sitcom. James, Kerry and I have often talked about it in our Sitcom Geeks podcast. Audience sitcom is very expensive to make. The BBC, even by BBC is strapped for cash standards, is strapped for cash. It's commercially high risk. Uh, if you've ever been to an audience sitcom recording, you'll know that even if the show goes brilliantly, the magic in the room on the night doesn't automatically travel through the camera lens to your living room. And no TV show provokes more intensity of passion uh, than an audience sitcom. 
uh, dislike drama may be dull or boring, a failing reality program will just be ignored, but if there's an audience sitcom we don't like, we take it personally, and a hurling abuse is on social media within seconds of the opening credits. Also, we've become used now to shows looking real. Uh, so without the constraints of a, a studio and a live audience, brilliant programmes like This Country and uh, Outnumbered usually use just one or two cameras and they can be filmed at a fraction of the price. There's another reason audience sitcoms are no longer so popular. Their staple comic premise, uh, the British class system, has been hijacked by the panel show. Uh, when the late Harry Thompson left Radio 4's News Quiz to produce Have I Got News For You, he made a conscious decision to put class at its heart. He knew that sticking Paul Merton in a room with Angus Deaton week in, week out, would generate class conflict. And one of the great joys of the early shows was watching the seemingly uneducated working-class oik put the sharp-suited Oxford University graduate in his place. So, since the 1980s, whether we like it or not, the writer-performer has become a major fixture in mainstream comedy. Oh, I thought someone might boo at that point. The <laughs> comedy festival for writers. But do we have many writer-performers here? A few, a few. Most of you, though, are writers. I will come to the rest of you then in a minute. Um, before alternative comedy, uh, we had subsidised theatre, and that was the main recruiting ground for actors for all forms of TV. So one of the reasons audience sitcoms gone out of fashion is because there are no longer so many of those actors with years of experience playing different parts and different types of theatre in front of audiences. The great sitcoms of the 80s and earlier were mainly writer-led, because during that period, British culture was essentially theatre-led. And theatre was where writers and performers separately learned their trade. Shane Allen is the BBC Comedy Commissioner. And last week, he admitted it's much harder now for people who are just writers. Sorry to lay that on you guys, but there you go. Now, alternative comedy may have been inspired by left-wing theatre and the re rebellious comedy of uh, Beckett and Brecht. But it, it was, at heart, a classic Thatcherite success. Cheap, unsubsidised entertainment that paid for itself and helped shift alcohol units in the process. So we no longer have these immensely versatile working actors who can play anyone, anytime. Instead, we have stand-up comedians who've done thousands of shows. They can't be lots of different people, but they can play any audience and they can play any version of themselves. So no wonder the TV companies go to them first. So... What I'd like to do now is identify some newer problems, I think, which, which have come up, emerged in the last couple of years. And the first problem that I want to mention uh, is kind of an existential problem. And that's a question now that if I ask it, I'll get a different answer from every one of you. What is a sitcom? Now, 20 years ago, that was an easy question to answer. Friends, Frasier, Father Ted. What is it now? Flowers, flea bag, and when did F take over from K as the comedy letter? <laughs> At the TV Writers Festival last week, BBC Studios Commissioner uh, Chris Sussman, who's been a big supporter of comedy over the years, said he is looking for comedy drama. He didn't define it. Uh, deliberately, he said, he wants writers to be original first and worry about those details later. Good for him, I say. 
Uh, John Montague, who's the head of comedy at Sky, asked to define comedy drama. He said, it's whatever you think it is. <laughs> I'm not sure it matters. <laughs> well, you know, if even comedy commissioners aren't defining sitcom, what hope have we got? So the next problem that uh, also was identified at a TV festival, uh, chairing a panel of comedy commissioners, uh, James, James Carey asked them, he said, um, well, he didn't do that because that would have been totally unprofessional. <laughs> he said, what do you want? And don't just say, surprise us. Which surprise them? Good for him. Although, strangely for James, that didn't automatically uh, translate into a six-part series for him. So they don't want to be that surprised. They, they did, however. They surprised me. James asked them the question he is programmed to ask any time he meets a TV commissioner. Are you looking for audience sitcom? And instead of the answer that I was expecting from everyone except Shane Allen of BBC, no, every one of them said, yes. Commissioners are looking for audience sitcom. That's what they said last week. So, why aren't they making them? Well, and their answer was, because nobody sends us audience sitcom scripts. To which writers will respond, that's because you don't make them anymore. Now, Fiona McDermott, head of narrative comedy, Channel 4, said, if talent pitched it to us, we'd embrace it. Uh, Saskia Schuster of ITV, who's going to be talking uh, in, a, in a bit, she says she would love to make audience sitcom. She, says, she describes ITV as a channel that is audience-facing. That brings me, then, to the biggest feckin' problem of all. Who in this room wants to be known as the writer of the next Mrs. Brown's Boys? <laughs> now, I'm grateful to uh, Paulie McGowan of uh, the nursery. They, she uh, spoke earlier today about the nine types of uh, comedy. Uh, but she, their, her company, the nursery, did some outstanding research on uh, what makes people laugh. And central to that research was the response to Mrs. Brown's Boys. Now, there's an almost straight-down-the-line split between those who love Mrs. Brown's Boys and those who have never watched Mrs. Brown's Boys. <laughs> I swear that the Brexit-Northern Ireland customs border question will be easier to resolve than the Mrs. Brown's Boys divide. Now, I'm being a little bit harsh, but of the 50% or so of uh, Pauline's respondents who claimed to hate Mrs. Brown's Boys a good number did admit they'd never actually seen it. Locked in a room, strapped to a chair, and forced to sit through a two-minute clip from the show, many of these people found themselves, despite their best intentions, laughing. Now, I'm not going to reveal their names because the witness protection scheme forbids it. Okay? <laughs> I must admit that I was initially not a fan of Mrs. Brown's Boys. Over time, I've come to realise uh, that the problem is not Brendan O'Carroll's, or as he was known when he's going into character, Brenda? No, Carol. It's an audience show, come on, I've got to try and get the laughs here. <laughs> no, the problem is not his, hers, the problem is mine. When the show first appeared in 2011, how I laughed, but not in the way that they were hoping. It was the patronising, mocking, smug, superior laugh of the North London metropolitan elite. More specifically, the laugh of someone who believed that all our sensible arguments that political correctness was not actually a terrible thing had been won and that the subject was closed. 
Soon the laughter turned to horror. The show was popular. In fact, it quickly became the most popular comedy on TV. How did that happen? Audience sitcom, the one subject on which I claim to be something of an authority. How did I call that so wrong? People like Mrs. Brown's boys, Dave. Millions of them. Get over it. And I have. Now, I think one of the main reasons that it's the focus of so much hatred is because most of the time, it's all the audience sitcom land has to offer. So what I say to you is, if you dislike Mrs. Brown's boys so much, why don't you try writing something different? As Swift famously said, the haters gonna hate, 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 <laughs> hate, hate. <laughs> but the players are gonna play, 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 play. So come on, writers, get playing, get fecking writing those audience sitcoms, okay? That'll surprise the studio commissioners. Now, I know quite a few writers who've worked on non-audience narrative comedy, top funny comedy writers, and they say quite often, it's a shame, sometimes we have to uh, lose a joke, uh, I've done it again, uh, it's a shame we have to lose a great joke because it interrupts the flow of the narrative. Now, you don't get that luxury with audience sitcom. So there we go. Write sitcom scripts. How are we going to sell these scripts, though? How will we persuade the TV companies to make this high-risk, high-cost, high-chance-of-success-only-if-you're-a-show-like-Mrs-Brown's-boys genre? And the answer is... I don't know. <laughs> but this has never been a better time to find out. There's a revolution happening in telly right now, and as ever, the BBC are the ones forced by necessity to come up with an answer. Well, we tend to think of the BBC, we talk of the BBC like it's like a one homogenous unit. But many in this room will tell you what a hugely different experience you have working for uh, TV, radio or kids. Now, radio and CBBC have been used to innovating, thanks to cuts and crises, for decades. Radio 4 continues to produce an incredible range of comedy from the most experimental late-night weirdnesses through to the most mainstream early evening star vehicles. Radio and Kids TV are the last remaining training grounds for new writers and programme makers. If you want to get on in TV, you'd also better listen, start listening to what CBBC are up to. At the first writers' meeting for the new Horrible Histories series last month, we had a visit from a CBBC executive. Now, expecting the, the usual mix of uh, flattery and corporate speak, <laughs> hey, we love you guys, uh, the brand is cherished across the world, keep delivering quality product. We didn't get a word of that at all. We just got someone saying, okay, listen to me, everything has changed. Kids no longer sit down and watch telly at specified time. Everything is about delivering content, first through YouTube, Instagram, Snapchat. We've got two new websites, you can imagine, I'm 59. I thought Instagram was the thing I was supposed to blame my old 78s on. <laughs> Update the language, more quickfire material. We want material they can share across their phones and iPods. Da, 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 da. Now, I get all this. I've got kids that age, and I see that's how they watch things. I think there's always a danger of over-fetishizing new technology, but it is happening. Future generations are picking up their comedy in completely different ways to how we did. And yet... Families are still sitting around the telly on at 7 o'clock on a Saturday evening watching audience-driven shows. What if we get back in the habit of making audience sitcoms? All it takes is for one of them to be a hit on a Saturday evening and they will become fashionable again. 
So I want to pick up on uh, something else that John Montague said at the TV festival last week. He said, we don't commission writers, we commission programmes. So all of you who didn't put up your hands when I said you're writer performers, meaning you're all writers, sorry, that's you. You're not getting commissioned anymore, it's your programme that's getting commissioned. So that feels like a shift, that feels like a change in how writers are approached. It's something that's been going on for years. Now, I'm going to use a word that may cause you to be physically sick, as I nearly was when I first heard the word webinar. <laughs> this word that I'm going to say combines the esteemed noble thing we love with all that we despise, the very adversary we chose this career to avoid, and the word is... Writerpreneur. <laughs> it's in your ears now. It's never going away. Sorry about that. Actually, I'm not sorry at all. I've been spending a lot of time this year learning about self-publishing. I have a book about comedy writing coming out in September. It's called Funny Up, and it'll be available from all good computers. Because <laughs> I decided early on that I would publish it myself. I considered it an important principle not to approach publishers or literary agents on the basis that every single one of them would almost certainly reject it. <laughs> now, I've got nothing against rejection, okay? We comedy writers love it. It's how we bond. Rejection is fine. It happens to us all. Hands up if you've had a script rejected in the last 12 months. Okay, uh, if you haven't got your hand up, that means that you haven't actually offered anything new in the last 12 months. But to get a book idea rejected, now, that's a whole new world of rejection. There are ways out there of denting my already fragile self-esteem, of which I know nothing. Was it rejected because they got something like it in production, or because it's a sack of excrement, or because, you know, there's not enough Jews in show business, and so they need to get someone different to me? I'm far too old to start learning that now. I have, however, very late in life, discovered my inner capitalist. In the world of self-publishing, writing a book is a very small part of the process. Making it, designing it, proofreading, building an audience ahead of publication, marketing, publicity, building whatever other skills you bring into the creation, all this matters. And every time I start to feel the hostility of the socialist voice at the back of my head yelling, sell out, or biblio-fascist, I remind myself of this. Item one. This book took five years of my spare time. Uh, it's called How to Be Averagely Successful at Comedy. Uh, I don't think it's a, a bad book. It's okay. And uh, I say so myself. I wrote it. I got someone to design and typeset it. Had a launch party at my favourite local bookshop. Sold a few hundred copies. And that was it. I kind of gave up on it once I'd written it. Um, and that's kind of that attitude has to change now I've got this new book I'm putting myself in a position to at least give it a chance this is what writers have to do now we all have to do that remember commissioners commission programs not writers so stop being just a writer become a writer producer work with other writer producers as well of course but don't be afraid to keep creative control of this thing that you've nurtured from nothing what have you got to lose by insisting on being present at every meeting about the show, having a say in casting and rewriting? Yes, it's your vision, but don't get precious about it. And being on set to enable the rest of the crew to get their best of the show and the edit. 30 years ago, Jimmy Mulville 
Griff Rees-Jones and Henry Normal were all writers who learned to produce and then they created their own TV uh, st uh, companies uh, that have produced some of the most successful comedy in the last 30 years. So it's time to step outside of your comfort zone, stop using cliches like comfort zone and get writing. Now, writer performers, not many of you here today, but, you know, get working with writers. Make stuff. And remember, all of us, what got us into this job? What was your life's ambition as a writer-performer? To appear from the stomach upwards with Ian Hislop and Paul Merton? Let's, let's rediscover our great tradition of live narrative, of Shakespeare and Panto and the end of the pier, of comedy theatre and narrative stand-up. Comedy is a form, to paraphrase Saskia, that is audience-facing. Take control of the production process. Make stuff online. Be bold. Write audience sitcom scripts. Come on, 95% of the scripts everyone in this room will write in the next 12 months are going to be rejected at some stage on the long journey to not getting made. <laughs> Why not just say to hell with your moody camera angles and your meaningful glances into the middle distance? Let's stick these people in front of an audience and make them be funny. Look at this country. Um, not this country. Well, look at that. It is good. But uh, look, look, look at our nation. And, you know, look at us now. We've become a, a kingdom divided. We're old against young, rich against poor, north against south, cities versus towns, England and Wales versus Scotland and Ireland, extremists versus centrists. Who better to pick at those postulant scabs and expose our deep, unpleasant wounds than a bunch of dysfunctional social misfits with, <laughs> let's face it, questionable dress sense, and then have a bloody good laugh about it. Comedy is the best form for the new revolution. Comedy can unite our divided countries. Sit me in a room with Nigel Farage, Katie Hopkins and Stephen Yaxley Lennon in front of an episode of Dad's Army and I guarantee by the end of it, well, we'll still hate each other. <laughs> but for half an hour we will have pricked the pomposity that makes us think we speak for our nation or that we're smart enough to deliver a keynote speech about audience sitcom to a room full of comedy experts. Thank you very much. <laughs>